0: Please turn to the back of your hymn book to 914, page 914. I'm going to read articles 12 and 13. Article 12 dealing with uh, the fact that assurance of perseverance does not lead to complacency. And then Article 13, that assurance, again, does not lead to carelessness. Article 12, page 914. This assurance of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. Article 13 Neither does the renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness and those put back on their feet after a fall, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord which he prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest, by their abuse of his fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God, for the godly look upon his face, looking upon his face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. Turn away from them again with the result that they fall into greater anguish of spirit. Let's open our Bibles now to 1 John. Chapter 5, reading only the first five Verses First John, Chapter Five. First John Five, verse One Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So far the reading of God's holy word. Please keep it open as we'll be turning back in 1 John, looking at some other verses in connection with our text. How encouraging it can be to witness a wedding and to hear a committed Christian couple make their vows before God and his people. The young man promises that he will, with the gracious help of God, love, honor, and maintain her, live with her in the holy bonds of marriage, according to God's ordinance, and never forsake her so long as they both shall live. The young woman makes a similar promise. What a blessing for a young bride to hear the man she loves promise before God that he will never forsake her. And what a blessing for a young man to hear the woman next to him promise that she will never forsake him so long as they both shall live. A man and a woman who are redeemed by Christ and fully devoted to God will take those promises very seriously. The ring that they put on each other's finger is a symbol of their constant faithfulness and abiding love. Whatever happens in the course of their life, each has promised to the other that their commitment will not fail. Congregation, the commitment and love within Christian marriage should reflect the commitment and love that Christ, the bridegroom, has for his bride, his redeemed people. You see, Jesus will never forsake those for whom he died. He perseveres in the lives of his people so that the relationship between him and his elect can never be completely broken. One of our previous messages, we have seen that the biblical doctrine of the preservation of the saints is very comforting. Christ Our bridegroom is not only completely faithful himself, but he also preserves us so that we can never entirely forsake him. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. The relationship between believers and Christ is secure and lasting, not because of our ability to persevere, not because of our constant faithfulness and abiding love, but because of the promise of Christ to preserve us. Paul said to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We noted a few weeks ago that when we speak of the perseverance of the saints, perhaps it is more appropriate to speak of the preservation of the saints. Perseverance of the saints emphasizes the activity of the believer whereas the term preservation of the saints emphasizes the activity of God. Believers are preserved by God, kept and guarded by him so that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Article 3 of the fifth head of the canons rightly says, because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them, And also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. We are weak. However, the weakness of the flesh cannot prevail against the power of God. Therefore, it is because God preserves His people that His people persevere in their love toward Him. As Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, so Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for us so that though we may fall for a season, we can never fully or finally fall away. Those who are truly believers cannot be snatched from God's hand. They are and always will remain true and living members of the church. But congregation, there are those who object to the doctrine of perseverance or preservation because they believe it causes false security and is harmful to godliness, good morals, prayers, and other holy exercises. They look at it this way, if a university student is assured by his professor that he will pass the upcoming exam, why would he bother to study diligently? He could party with his friends because he will not fail the exam. If a tradesman is assured by his boss that he will never lose his job, why would he exert himself? He could show up late in the morning, do sloppy work, spend half his day at Tim Hortons, but he will never be fired. If a young man is assured by his father that he will receive his father's business one day, why would he try hard to prove his worth to his father? Arminian theologians conclude that the assurance of perseverance causes false security and is harmful to godliness, good morals, prayers, and other holy exercises. Are they correct? Are they correct? Does it lead to complacency and carelessness? In 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle John teaches that those who are truly born of God are not complacent and careless. On the contrary, they desire to live in obedience to his commands. From these verses, I want to direct your attention to four things. Number one, what is the primary evidence that you are born of God? Number two, what is your attitude to God's people when you are born of God? Number three, what is your attitude to God's commands? And number four, what is your attitude towards the world? To begin with, what does the Apostle John say is the primary evidence that you are born of God? Well, let's have a look at verse 1. Please follow along at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The ESV says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been born, perfect tense, of God. The perfect tense is used when something which occurred in the past has an abiding influence into the future, a past event with continuing consequences. In this case, the rebirth brought about by the Holy Spirit leads to faith in Jesus as the Christ. In other words, faith is the result of new birth. Having been born of God results in our believing. Or stating it yet another way, our believing in Jesus is the evidence of God's beginning. Our believing in Jesus is the evidence of God's beginning. As we noted not so long ago, this is one of the points of debate between Reformed theologians and Arminian theologians. Reformed theologians insist that sinners are first made spiritually alive by God, and the ongoing activity of believing is the result Spiritual birth or regeneration precedes faith. We believe because we have first been made alive. Arminian theologians argue that regeneration is the fruit or result of faith. They argue that we are born again because we believe. Faith precedes regeneration. When we come to Christ by faith, we are born again by the Spirit of God, according to Arminianism. Well, congregation, by way of review, what does it mean to be born of God? What is rebirth or regeneration? The Bible teaches that fallen sinners in Adam are, we read it a moment ago, dead. Being dead in sin, we have no desire for the things of God and are unable to change our spiritual condition. By nature, we will not and cannot believe that Jesus is the Christ. New birth or regeneration is the act of God, the Holy Spirit, by which he makes the spiritually dead sinner alive. Regeneration is a new beginning. Those who are born of God begin a new life in a radically renewed person. Our heart is recreated so that we are able and eager to respond to the things of God. God plants a desire for himself in our heart that otherwise would not be there. Congregation, that is what John is talking about here in verse 1. He's telling us that a sinner is first made alive by God, and the evidence that he is born of God is that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that He is the Messiah, the long-promised Savior. That word, Christ, is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament title, Messiah, which means anointed. Messiah and Christ mean exactly the same thing. In the Old Testament, as you know, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil and set apart to lead God's people. Prophets were set apart to proclaim the word. Priests were set apart to offer sacrifices and to make intercession for God's people. And kings were set apart to rule righteously in the name of God. Prophets, priests, and kings were messiahs. That is to say, they were anointed with oil and set apart for a special task. They all pointed to Jesus, the great Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus was the supreme prophet sent by God to proclaim the word. He not only proclaimed the word, he was God's word in the flesh. He was also the great high priest who offered a sacrifice of everlasting value himself. He was also the anointed king of all kings and lord of all lords. When sinners are born of God, the Holy Spirit enables us to believe that Jesus is the supreme prophet who reveals the will of God, the great high priest who presented himself as the sin offering and continues to intercede for his people, and the anointed king whose authority transcends all authorities, Congregation, if you truly believe that Jesus is the supreme prophet who reveals God's will to you, the great high priest who died and intercedes for you, and the eternal king who rules over you, then you have been born of God. Your spiritual deadness, willful ignorance, slavery to sin and alienation from god have been overcome through the regenerating work of the spirit and the faith that god grants through regeneration is permanent saving faith that flows from new birth can never be lost and so the primary evidence that you are born of god Is faith in Jesus the Christ, your prophet, priest, and king. Believing is the evidence of God's begetting. Secondly, how does this affect your attitude to God's people? How does this affect your attitude to God's people? Well, let's look again at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot, everyone who loves the Father, also loves him who is begotten of him, born of him. You see, spiritual birth not only affects your vertical relationship, your relationship with God, but it also affects your horizontal relationships, especially with other Christians. Those who are born of God begin to look differently upon others who are also born of God. We are born into a family. And being indwelt by the same spirit, we desire to preserve family, unity, and love. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. The Apostle John is very strong on this point. Let me show you. Please turn back with me in your Bibles to 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now go to chapter 3, verse 10. 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now drop down to verse 14. 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, continue on to chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then go to verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now talk about repetition in a sermon. Love your brother, love your brother, love your brother, love your brother. Repetition in a sermon. It is a sad reality of church life that at times professing Christians fail in this. Sometimes that is true on a local church level. Frank refuses to speak with Sam because of a conflict between their kids. And Martha refuses to be in the same room as Gertrude because she regards her as a gossip and a busybody. Consequently, she won't go to ladies Bible study lest she run the risk of sitting next to Gertrude. Harold will never have his elder over to his house because of a different opinion they had five years ago. Harold has no use for his elder. He thinks Sid is arrogant and high-minded. Sid always has to win the argument. Brothers and sisters, have you ever seen strained or broken relationships in a church? You ever heard a Martha complaining about a Gertrude? Or a Frank blasting a Sam or a Harold taking jabs at a sit. Or have you ever been the one doing the complaining, jabbing, and verbal stabbing? We need to realize that if we claim to love God, yet avoid our brother or sister, our claim is false and we are liars. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And then failure to love fellow Christians might not only be on a local level, but it might also be on a broader level. One Reformed writer pointed out that sometimes division is by denomination so that if they are Baptists, their brothers and sisters are Baptists. If they're Presbyterians, their brothers and sisters are Presbyterians. If they're independents, their brothers and sisters are all independents. Still, at other times, Christians will hold closely only to those within some rigid theological persuasion. Is this right? Can Christian brotherhood and the love that goes with it be so restricted John gives the answer to these questions in the opening verses of chapter 5 when he says clearly, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. In other words, membership in the family of God is not limited by anything other than confession of Jesus as the Christ. Consequently, the love of Christians for their brothers and sisters should extend to all who thereby give evidence of being God's true children. Ian Hamilton writes, I quote, What we read here is a huge challenge to us. It is all too easy to love those Christians who belong to our denomination or group and who agree with us. But how are we to relate to Christians who are different from us? The new birth unites us in God's family and somehow, without letting go of our deeply held biblical convictions, we must express that family unity in the way in which we think of and treat one another. We cannot remind ourselves too often that if we do not love our brother whom we can see, We cannot claim meaningfully to love God whom we have not seen. Hamilton goes on to say, if our father loves all of his children, and our Lord Jesus died to save all of God's children, and the Holy Spirit indwells all of God's children, it would be inconceivable that Christians should not love one another. This does not mean that we we do not seek to instruct, challenge, or even rebuke one another. It does mean, however, that we do so as family. That we do so as family. So first of all, John sets before us in our text the primary evidence that you are born of God. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, He tells us how this affects your attitude to God's people. You love others who are also His children. And then thirdly, how does this affect your attitude to God's commands? How does this affect your attitude to God's commands? Go with me to verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God... And keep his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome what does it mean to love God's children and how can we know that we truly love our fellow believers John answers it this way we know by loving God and keeping his commands In verse two, John presents us with the corollary to the truth expressed in verse one. One theologian said, just as it is impossible to love God without loving his children, so also it is impossible to truly love his children apart from loving him. Those twin priorities of loving God and other Christians mark all who have been born again. What John is saying is this, if you don't love God, if you don't love God, you can't rightly love anyone else. Yes, you can provide them with food, clothing, and shelter. You can look after them when they're sick and make them comfortable. You can come alongside them in times of sorrow and difficulty. But if you don't truly love God, you can't give them what is most important, encouraging them in the love of the Savior. You can't give them the things of eternal value. There are people who do some wonderful things for their neighbor. And of course, we appreciate that, don't we? But if they don't love God and carry out his commands, they cannot give their neighbor what is most important. So John reminds us that the only way to really love the children of God is to love God himself. When you're passionate about God, you will carry out his command to love your brother. And loving your brother means that you not only visit him when he's sick and clothe him when he's naked and feed him when he's hungry and comfort him when he's sorrowful, but it also means that you, be it in some small way, reflect God's character to him and help him to know, trust, and cherish Jesus Christ. Congregation, what's the connection between loving God, carrying out his commands, and loving his children? I believe the connection is this we love God, and we love God's children when we display something of God's character to our brother or sister as we interact with them in obedience to God's commands. Let me say that again. We love God, and we love God's children when we display something of God's character to our brother or sister as we interact with them in obedience to God's commands. You see, for the Christian, Obedience to God's commands is not burdensome. As John tells us in verse three, his commandments are not burdensome. We're not saved by obedience to God's commands. If that were the case, his commands would certainly be burdensome. If we had to earn salvation through obedience to his commands, we would constantly groan under the weight of the burden unable to attain. But having been saved through the grace of Jesus, having received salvation as a free gift through the cross of Christ, having received his perfect obedience, his righteousness credited to our account, and having received the assurance that those who are born of God can never perish, we can now view God's commands as our friend. As our friend. When John says that God's commands are not burdensome, he may have been thinking of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christian comes to understand that sin is burdensome. Sin is burdensome to the natural man. Sin appears to be satisfying. Following the desires of the flesh appears to be the way of liberty. And yes, Scripture does speak of the passing pleasures of sin. Sin. But the person who is born of God comes to see that ultimately, disobedience to God's commands is not freedom at all. It is burdensome. God's way is the way of liberty. Look back upon your own life. Look back upon your own life and ask yourself the question, have the burdens in my life come from obedience to God's commands or from disobedience? Have the burdens in your marriage, home, work, school, university, have they come because of obedience to God or disobedience? Ask yourself, do idolatry, selfishness, dishonesty, defiance of authority, covetousness, drunkenness, fornication, adultery, lust, and pride, do they liberate people or do they weigh them down? The unregenerate person may think that Christianity is burdensome. Don't do this and don't do that. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. To the unregenerate mind, Christianity is restrictive and oppressive. But the person who is born of God knows that God's commands are the means by which we live in freedom. All of his commands are good. The psalmist said, More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, then much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. In Psalm 119, the inspired writer repeatedly expressed his appreciation for God's law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Congregation. The Arminian assertion that the doctrines of election and the certainty of perseverance lead to complacency, carelessness, and licentiousness is not valid whatsoever. The person who knows his election by God and knows the regenerating work of the Spirit and knows that those who are born of God can never be lost, such a person loves God and wants to obey His commands. Article 12 of the fifth head of the canons reminds us that the the certainty of perseverance is the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Article 12 goes on to say that reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works. Isn't that similar to what the Apostle John is saying as well? The person who knows that he's born of God does not become complacent and careless. Rather, he loves his father, he loves his spiritual family, and he loves God's commands. They are not burdensome. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Are you born of God, devoted to God, displaying the character of God to the people of God through obedience to God for the honor of God? And then finally, point number four. What is your attitude to the world? What is your attitude to the world? Have a look at verses four and five. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We are able to love God and love others because through the new birth, we have overcome the world. There are forces at work in the world that would destroy our love for God, love for His people, and love for His commands. What are those forces? Well, let's back up once again to 1 John 2. Please turn back to 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. What are those forces? forces. First John two, fifteen and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. According to verse 16, what are the forces at work in the world that would destroy our love for God, His people, and His commands? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You could boil it down to two things. Number one, cravings for what we don't have, and number two, boasting in what we do have. When we don't have what we crave, the world would corrupt us through covetousness. And when we do have what we crave, the world would corrupt us through boasting or pride. Love for God, His people, and His commands are threatened through unrestrained cravings and foolish pride. When we long for the things of the world, and when we boast in what we have and do, God, his people, and his laws are set aside. How are these forces overcome? Go back to our text, 1 John 5, verse 4. 1 John 5, verse 4. How are these forces overcome? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Through new birth. The forces in the world that would keep us from loving God, His people, and His commands are overcome. New birth enables us to see the threat and to resist sinful covetousness and pride. New birth enables us to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He is our greatest treasure. And new birth enables us to say, He who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. New birth overcomes the world. It severs the root of those cravings for the world. Through regeneration, sinful desires and foolish pride no longer rule us. He who is within the Christian is greater than he who is within the world. Having received a heart transplant from the Lord, We learn to reject the enticements, seductions, and temptations of the world, and we grow in our love for God, his people, and his commands. Again, congregation, the person who knows his election by God knows the regenerating work of the Spirit, and knows that those who are born of God can never be lost, such a person resists the enticements of the world, the desi- he desires a life of obedience, and lives for the glory of God. These wonderful truths do not produce licentiousness or a disregard of piety, as stated in Article 13, Rather, they produce a desire to forsake this God-rejecting world, to crucify our old nature, and to lead a godly life. They produce a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord, Article 13. The person who is born of God lives to please the great overcomer, Jesus Christ. The faith that is created by regeneration recognizes the barrenness of sinful worldly pride and pleasures. And the faith that is created by regeneration recognizes the superior worth of Christ over all else. That is why faith conquers the world. The world would hold you in bondage. But through the gift of faith, we see the glory, majesty, and beauty of Christ. And we say with the hymn writer, Fare thee well, that errest, thou that earth preferest; thou wilt tempt in vain. Fare thee well, transgression, hence abhorred possession, come not forth again. Past your hour, O pride and power, worldly life thy bonds I sever, fare thee well forever. Congregation, although the ones who are born of God overcome the world, the world that is hostile to God still calls. The world still wants you to linger and savor the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. But through faith in Jesus, the Son of God, you are able to overcome And so I encourage you today to meditate on who Christ is and all that he has done for you. As you do, you will love him more. You will love his people more. You will love his commandments more. And you will love the world so much less. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides Forever. And if all of this sounds rather strange to you, if you still love the world and the things of the world, if you're still enamored by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I urge you to repent. Seek forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and begin the more satisfying and liberating life in His service your prophet, your priest, and your king. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you once again for that that new life that you give to your elect, born of God. What a privilege that is. We pray that having been born of God, we would truly love your people. Labor alongside one one another in love and respect and care that we would not only love your people, but that we would also love your commands and that we would recognize that they are not burdensome. That knowing these great truths, Lord, we would never fall into complacency, that the assurance of perseverance would never lead us to complacency, that it would not lead us to carelessness, that we would be so overwhelmed By the beauty and the glory of Christ, that we will give ourselves to service, that our life will be shaped by your commands, that we will honor you, and that be abundantly clear to those around us that we are born of God. We pray, Lord, that each and every person here may truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by your work, each one here may know him as Messiah, the anointed, our prophet, our priest, and our king. May we discuss these things together, Lord, and edify one another. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.